people. I have enjoyed getting to hear my parents tell. I've enjoyed getting to, to, to watch parents tell their kids. And so this morning, we're going to walk through that story. So Daniel, for those of you that don't know where we're at, I, I want to just give us the right context of, of where we're at in Scripture, where we're at in the history of the Bible. So we're towards the end of the Old Testament. So we've, we've passed creation, right? We've passed... Um, <clears throat> We've passed Noah in the ark. We've passed, Ad, uh, we've passed Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We've passed Moses coming in and, and rescuing the people of Israel out of Egypt. We've passed Joshua. We've passed the people going into the promised land and then having judges to, to come and, and rescue them out of their um, rebellion. We've passed all of that. We've even passed King David. We've passed the point of the split of the people of Israel into Israel and Judah. And so where we're at is in the, in the very beginning of, of Daniel right here in Daniel chapter 1. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So that's how we start Daniel. Probably not the optimal start for us. It's probably not the most hopeful start for us. As we look to the people of Israel, we've seen this happen before though. Right? We've seen where the people have rebelled and where God has had to bring retribution, we see it throughout the judges. We see the cycle happen time and time again. So this morning we're going to see how God would protect his people. And so as we begin, I just want to stop and focus and pray for us this morning before we go forward. Lord God, as, as we come this morning, Lord, I pray that you would um, calm my heart. Lord, I, prepare, I pray that you would prepare my heart and prepare the heart of the people that are here this morning. Lord, I'm so thankful for the opportunity to come and worship with fellow believers. Lord, I pray that your word would ring true. I pray that it would not return void as you promised. Lord, I pray that as we, as we study your word, as we see this story play out and what Daniel does and what you do through Daniel, Lord, that you would just change our hearts. Lord, I pray that you'd be glorified this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So very quickly in the book of Daniel, we get to see the character of Daniel and we get to see him as um, an individual who actually in an odd way gets picked up and out and gets placed into a pretty, pretty prestigious role, if you will. So, so King Nebuchadnezzar does something that's a little bit odd in pulling out people, even the Israelites, some of them. And saying, I'm going to put you in this special place and we're going to train you up and prepare you and I'm going to groom you if, I, if you will. And so, so Daniel, we see very quickly his character because he is one of the four specifically mentioned that gets picked up and pulled out and put in this, this, this um, system, if you will. And they quickly um, begin to, to feed these guys. As you can imagine, we're talking about King Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon. They don't have quite the same restrictions that the Israelites did, correct? So what do they bring? Well, they bring what they think is the best food, the stuff that they enjoy to eat, the things that they like. And Daniel very quickly comes to them and says, listen, I, I can't defile myself with this food. But let's think about this situation for just a minute because what situation is Daniel in? Right? King Nebuchadnezzar has just come in and taken over um, Judah right? He has taken over and now he's actually been pretty gracious by their standards to pick Daniel out and pull him out and to, and to put him in this thing where he's actually going to be groomed and going to be treated really well and going to be taken care of. And Daniel stops and says, no, no, I can't eat your food. That's a brave thing to say. 
So what does he do? He comes in and it actually says the chief eunuch had, that God gave the chief eunuch compassion for Daniel. And he says, okay, so what are we going to do? Daniel says, try this. Because the eunuch is scared. He says, how can I feed you all of this other food when the king has commanded me to do this? What happens when you're weak and scrawny and can't take care of yourself? Daniel says, try this. For 10 days, let me and these other three brothers just eat vegetables and drink water. We're not going to eat all the other things. We're not going to drink the strong wine. And at the end of 10 days, we'll see how it looks. Well, at the end of 10 days, what happens? They were seen as fatter in flesh. So for those of you in the room, don't eat vegetables and drink water. You're going to be fatter in flesh. That's what I learned from that. So no more vegetables for me, babe. You got to fix me meat, lots of meat. No, but, but what do we see? God is faithful to take care of his people. Daniel is obedient. But we get to see the character of Daniel very, very upfront at the very first little story that we see told. And so uh, we work our way through. That's chapter one. In chapter two, um, there's been some time passed, but Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. And obviously, that's the king that's ruling. Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. And this dream um, frightens him a bit. He gets to the point where he says, I've got to have an interpretation. He can't live without it. And so he starts calling in anybody that he can to come in and interpret this dream. But what happens is he says, hey, come in and interpret this dream. You're a wise man. Come in and interpret. And then they get there and they say, okay, well, tell us the dream so that we can interpret. He says, no, no, no. You're going to tell me the dream and the interpretation. Um, King, no, you, you have to, that's not how this works, King. You tell us the dream, and then we tell you the interpretation. He says, no, no, you're not going to fool me. You're not telling me some bogus interpretation just because you heard a dream, and you can make it work. It, if the gods are really speaking to you, you can know both. So he brings in these different people, and all of them look at him like he's crazy and say, we, we can't do that. You're asking for the impossible. And, and actually, uh, Nebuchadnezzar makes this decree that he's going to kill all of the wise men. So they go out to start killing the wise men and actually Daniel hears of this and he goes and he says, what, what's going on? And, and, and the guy that had been sent explains to him what's happening. Daniel and what we will later know them as the Shad, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were considered some of the wise men that weren't able to fulfill. And so Daniel says, no, hold on, I need an appointment with the king. And so he goes and he, and he, and he meets with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and he prays. He asks that God would reveal the dream and the interpretation to him. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 20, here's what, here, here's what he says. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He, in, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might. And have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you've made known to us the king's manner. Matter. So what happens? God reveals the dream and the interpretation to Daniel. Daniel goes in, gets a, a meeting set up, and he goes to King Nebuchadnezzar and he says, Here's the dream, and here's the interpretation. And what it says is that it says, Nebuchadnezzar fell face first in front of Daniel. He began to make offerings to Daniel and he raised Daniel up to be an important dude of the time. So Daniel had been faithful and obedient and God blessed him. God raised him up into a, a, a place of authority over a lot of people. So 
it's interesting because Nebuchadnezzar almost seems to, to, to appreciate what God has done. So let's move on though. Let's see what continues to happen for Nebuchadnezzar. In chapter 3, we see a, a new storyline kind of begin. And King Nebuchadnezzar creates a golden statue of some sort, some kind of golden image, right? And we know that that would have been considered an idol, definitely against what God has called the people of Israel to, right? So what he says is, at the sound of the music playing, all in the kingdom will bow down and worship this golden image, well, we already heard Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's name brought up a minute ago. And so they're the, they're the um, key players in this story. And what happens? Well, they don't worship when the music plays. So some of the, uh, the men that, that reported to Nebuchadnezzar told him. So they brought in these three guys. Nebuchadnezzar says, when that music plays, you will bow down and worship. And I love their response. It says... Listen, our God is capable of saving. But even if he doesn't, we will not bow down and worship. You see, their response was not dependent on the circumstances they were in. Their response was obedience despite the circumstances. They truly believed that God was fully capable of saving them from this fiery furnace that had already been promised. But that's not what determined whether they would or, not be, would, or would not be obedient. You see, we see a great display of faithfulness by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in this story. So what do they do? They don't bow down. They don't worship. And here's the deal. Like, like it says, they, they truly believed that God was capable of saving, but they didn't necessarily think that he would. They knew that he was capable. Didn't necessarily think that he would. But you know what? God had to display his power for King Nebuchadnezzar again. So what did he do? King Nebuchadnezzar was furious so much though. He said, turn up the heat on that furnace. Turn it up as high as we can get it. So they do that. King Nebuchadnezzar's pride and arrogance was so much that he was willing to kill at least three men for the sake of them not bowing down to some golden statue. We'll see as the story plays out, not only did he kill three men, but he killed some more that were trying to get the uh, three of them into the fire because it was so hot it was out of control. We look at King Nebuchadnezzar and initially my thought is, how could he? What is he thinking? What, I don't understand. Just a chapter ago, what had he done? He fell face first in front of Daniel in awe and amazement. I think the issue here is why did King Nebuchadnezzar fall face first in front of Daniel? The people of the time were very, very known for just adding gods as they showed up, right? If they needed something, they would just make a god for it and sing and worship and praise and try to get him to give it to them. And so when, when King Nebuchadnezzar fell face down in front of Daniel, this was not because he had submitted to God's lordship. No, it was simply because he said, oh, good trick, do it again. See, King Nebuchadnezzar's heart had not been changed. He was just impressed with a fancy trick. So then in chapter 3, when the golden image comes up and all of a sudden these guys are not willing to submit and not willing to worship this golden statue that Nebuchadnezzar has created, his pride and arrogance show up. As I read and studied this week, 
initially my thought was, God, this guy is, is, I can't believe this guy. How could he? Why would he? What is he doing? He seemed like a decent guy at the front. He would pull out these Israelites that they've taken over and bring them in to help them become leaders. And now he's just going to kill them off because of something silly. But then I stopped and I began to think about my week at work. And I stopped and I began to think about my month at work. And then I stopped and began to think about even the whole past year at work. I thought about my response to things going on at work, the questions that I would ask, the attitude that I have walking in. And what I realized was my intent on a daily basis, even as I walk into work, had nothing to do with submitting to the Lordship of God. It had everything to do with my comfort so many days. So the exact same sin that I think is just unbelievable and probably plays itself out in a little bit more severe way for Nebuchadnezzar is the exact same sin that I have in my heart. The one of selfish, prideful arrogance. Because when I walk in to work to do what God's called me to do, I'm so prideful and arrogant that I miss the opportunity to be obedient despite the circumstances. You see, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego understood They said, God's glory is what matters here, not my comfort, not my physical life here. That's not the important part. We serve the creator God, the all-powerful, sustaining God. So as I look at King Nebuchadnezzar and his thought process and his attitude and his prideful arrogance about the situation, I realize it's the same sin that, that I'm guilty of. But I, but I love what happens. We work through this and, and, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego go into the fire, right? They, they, they're there and King Nebuchadnezzar looks in and he sees four. And he calls out to him, he says, come out of there. Your God has saved you, come out. They come out and they don't even smell like smoke. What a miracle. What a display of God's power. How awesome of a God that could do this. And, and, and King Nebuchadnezzar responds um, in verse 3 of chapter 4. It says, How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. So maybe we've seen a little bit of heart change from King Nebuchadnezzar. I don't know. Again, he kind of shouts out in praise. I'm going to say I don't think we're quite at heart change yet. I think, I think you'll be with me here in just a second, but I don't think it's real heart change. I think, again, it's another, uh, it's another good trick. Do it again. Show me one more. Right, so what happens? Nebuchadnezzar has another dream. Chapter 4 talks through that dream, and then guess who he calls upon to interpret? Daniel again. Daniel, at first, is actually hesitant. He doesn't want to give this dream. He's scared of what the king might do. He's scared of the reaction Uh, of what could come about from this. This is a nerve-wracking place to be. The king actually says, don't be afraid. Tell Tell me the interpretation. So Daniel interprets. This interpretation is probably not the, the, the best one for the king. He, uh, Daniel does what he's called to do in prophesying and he actually tells them what's gonna come and, and then he also calls um, the king to repentance. He says, look, turn. At the, at the end right here, it says, um, 
Verse 26, and it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots and of the tree. Your kingdom shall be confirmed for you for the time uh, that you know that the heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. That there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prophecy. So he actually tells him that there's these things to come where he is going to be sent out as a beast of the field. He's going to eat of the fields. He's going to sleep in the fields. He's going to have dew on him when he wakes up in the morning because he didn't have a bed to lay his head in. He's going to sleep in the fields. And so, so Daniel calls him to, to repentance. He says, look, submit to the Lordship of God. Like, show, show mercy on the oppressed. Pursue righteousness. That, that, this, that this bad stuff may be prolonged. And it may not happen as soon. That you can continue to enjoy the prosperity that you have at this point. And so, Nebuchadnezzar's response to this doesn't last long. Twelve months later, he's looking out upon this kingdom. And he looks and he says, I have built. Nebuchadnezzar's heart hadn't been changed yet. And so Nebuchadnezzar again has taken credit for the, the great kingdom that has been developed and he's become prideful and arrogant again. And almost immediately after that, God does exactly what he said he was going to do. He says, your rule is gone. He sends him to the fields, has him eating out of the fields, has him sleeping in the fields, takes all of the things away from him that had been blessings and for seven seasons, or for seven periods of time, which it doesn't specify exactly what those periods of time are, but for seven periods of time, we see Nebuchadnezzar stuck out here. But I love verse 34 of chapter 4. After this time, it says, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and all his ways are just and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Nebuchadnezzar has truly been humbled finally. He understands. And we see that continue to play itself out. Um, basically, we don't have any evidence of him um, betraying God again in that way. But what I love is, God had actually blessed King Nebuchadnezzar with all that you could ask for worldly-wise, right? He was in charge of this whole huge nation. Had all of the, the nice things that he could have. But King Nebuchadnezzar did not understand that he submitted to a God that is greater. He was not willing to lay down his pride, his arrogance. See, he was walking into work on a daily basis saying, what can I get out of this? Why does this have to be so hard on me? He was prideful and arrogant. We're going to come back to that towards the end, but we're going to keep moving. So chapter 5, we see Nebuchadnezzar's son, Belshazzar. Um, is now ruling 
and uh, he, he, he does some things that are evil in the sight of the Lord. And there's a hand that shows up and begins writing. Doesn't say anything about a body attached to it. It just says a hand shows up and starts writing. And it's not even writing in what we would understand or what they would understand of the day. It's writing something. Nobody can interpret it. So guess what? The people knew who to call. Belshazzar began asking around and they said, I got the guy. We know who to send. So they called Daniel. Daniel comes and interprets the writing. And he actually, in verse 22 of chapter 5, I love what he says. Because, again, he had done what was evil. Again, right? He, he had actually turned and become prideful and arrogant again. So verse 22, it says, And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords and wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and, who are, and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Belshazzar knew Daniel. He had grown up probably knowing Daniel well enough. But Belshazzar is in control of the kingdom now. And what does Daniel do? Daniel goes in and just absolutely rebukes him. He says, you know better. You watched your dad go through this. He got sent out and had to spend seven seasons as a nobody in the fields, eating from the fields and sleeping in the fields. You know that you submit to a God who gives and takes away. He straight calls him out. Daniel was not nervous about giving this one this time like he was the first time. He came in and was obedient to what God had called him to, which was to call Belshazzar out on what he was doing. So God actually promised in this whole thing that he was going to remove Belshazzar. And so um, Daniel gives the rest of it. And verse 30 says, That very night Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. Before he was killed, he actually put Daniel back in rule. And gave him a good bit to rule over again because he knew that Daniel was right. As soon as Daniel called him out... He, I think Belshazzar probably knew maybe he was trying to protect himself and making Daniel important again. It doesn't really matter. Daniel is raised back up to a spot of, of rule. Belshazzar is killed and we have Darius, another, a new king. Now we think about this, we're in another tough spot. In all reality, a lot of times when kings come in and take over, they don't do it peacefully a lot of times. But in this case, we see, uh, I believe again, the grace of God. Darius comes in and he sets 120 satraps over the people. And then he says he has three above them, Daniel being one of those three. One of the top four in the entire nation that they're in. Daniel's ruling. I want us to just think for a minute though. Let's think back where we've come from, right? Who was Daniel? A lowly Israelite who'd been taken over by, the, by, by King Nebuchadnezzar. And so this is not a guy that would have been um, normal, right? Who wouldn't put the Israelites in charge of anything. You would try to knock them down because they were the people that had gotten taken over. But God had blessed Daniel. He'd put him in a really awesome spot. But as you can imagine, the other satraps probably didn't enjoy this very much. They probably couldn't believe that they were having to submit to one of these guys. 
So what do they do? They begin to look at Daniel to see how in the world can we get this guy out of this position? What can we do? There's no way I'm going to submit to this guy. Let's find, let's, let's find what he's doing wrong. Let's find it. You know what they find? Absolutely nothing. He is faithful. He is obedient. They actually say, the only fault that we're going to be able to find with this guy is when it has to do with his God. That's all we can find. Brother and sister, is that what they say about you at work? It's probably not what they say about me at work. Daniel was obedient and faithful. He submitted to the authority put in front of him and above him here on earth until it meant he had to betray something that God had called him to. But he was faithful. He worked hard. He was obedient. He submitted to authority as he's called to. What an example for us. But let's keep moving. So he said, now we've got to come, we've got to come up with something where this guy will be found guilty and we can get rid of him. So what do they do? They go to King Darius and they say, look, you're new king here. Here's what we want to do. We think that for 30 days, nobody ought to be able to bow down and worship or call out to anybody except for you. So they have him sign this decree. He signs it into action. Probably doesn't think a lot about the consequences. He says, oh, that's a good idea. I'd like that. Then guess what? Verse 10 of chapter 6. When David, when, I'm sorry, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, what do you think he did? You think he backed down, said, oh, well, that, my authority said I can't, so I better not for 30 days. Nope. He went to his house where he had windows in the upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. He continued to be faithful to God first. And actually, evidence says that he continued to do everything else that the king asked him to do except that. What happens? Well, these guys that had set this up in the first place to get him out of the, out of the spot he was in, they go to Darius and they say, this guy's not even willing to follow what you have said. This decree that you've instituted. And what did it say? Anybody that does that's going to get thrown in the lion's den. Many of us have probably read this story, have heard this story, have told this story. Darius is actually uh, pretty upset about this. He, he realizes that this was a trap for Daniel knew that Daniel was one of the few that would actually be faithful to, to cry out to his God because he was serving the real God. So he's actually just kind of tore up about this so much, says, uh, so, much so that it says he, he, he didn't even sleep. Verse 16 of chapter 6, Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of the lords, of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No uh, diversions were brought to him and sleep fled from him. Verse 19, then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. And as he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Mm. Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth. And they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king, 
I have done no harm. What a miraculous feat of power that God's displayed. Shut the mouth of lions, sent the angel to just shut their mouth, and not just shut their mouth, but calm them down to the point that they wouldn't maul him to death. What a feat of power. They specifically had that den of lions to kill people, and those lions' mouth just been shut. God did an awesome work. As we look at this story, I want us to make sure that we step back because I've read this story before and I've been absolutely blown away at the power of God in that story. But I want us to take a minute this morning before we finish and I want us to take a step back, right? Because what's going on in Daniel, there are some specific things and I hope we've pointed a couple of those out this morning of specific truths that we can pull from little parts. But I also want us to step back and look at this as in context of the story, the big story of scripture, Because I want us to think about, why did God play it out this way? Why why Daniel? Why why are we here? Well, I want us to understand. Number one, the kingdom had been besieged by Nebuchadnezzar. Again, if we think to what happens a lot of times in those situations, the people that are besieged are normally not treated very well. Right? And so we now have a situation where the Israelites are in a bad spot. But what happens? Well, he raises Daniel up to a place to help rule. Do you think Daniel was able to help take care of God's people in that? Most definitely. And we see that continue to play itself out. So much so that we get to this last, this last little story here. And what do we see again? God has displayed his power and is going to protect his people and give them the ability to worship their God because he has displayed his power plainly before the king. And so as we look at this story and we're absolutely obviously blown away at the power of the God that we serve, we see that he is also preserving for himself the people of Israel. He's working that his name continues to be made known. He's preparing the way for more stories to come. as, as As we study this, as I looked at this, I, I was blown away at the fact that God could do these miraculous works, whether it be the interpretation of a dream and not just the interpretation of a dream, but also telling him the dream when it wasn't even his own dream, right? Daniel comes in and doesn't just interpret. He has to actually tell Nebuchadnezzar the dream he had. I was amazed at the fact that a second time Daniel would have to do that. I was amazed at the fact that God could send or could allow for, for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be put into a fiery furnace and then come out not even smelling like smoke. I was amazed at the fact that Daniel could be thrown in a lion's den and walk out, not even scratched. But but let me tell you what one of the most impressive parts of this story was. One of the most impressive parts of this story is the fact that King Nebuchadnezzar's heart could be changed. You see, what we like to do is we like to be really impressed with the fact that God could control a lion. What we forget is the depth of our depravity. What we forget is the fact that Nebuchadnezzar, having a heart of stone, having no capability of doing good, could be made to worship and serve the God of the universe, taken from enemy to worshiper. This morning, as we, as we see the story of Daniel play out and we see this rescuer in Daniel, we see the, 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 the hope that Daniel brings to the people of Israel and to, to, to these new people that are in this kingdom, they get to see these things played out too. They're probably blown away in an amazement of what God's done. 
As we see that, I want us to realize that Daniel's story by itself is not enough. See, when we see Daniel's story, the, the, the power displayed in, in the lion's mouth being shut, the power displayed in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being pulled out of the fire with no smoke smell even on them. Those are beautiful displays of God's power. But let me tell you, that rescue, that hope, that help for the people of Israel was temporary. Daniel is temporal. He's not going to last. And so what this story helps us to do is it actually helps us point towards another hero that would come. Because, because the hope that we see in Daniel is only for physical comfort. It's only for this kingdom's sake, this worldly kingdom's sake. But here's the deal. Daniel still has to deal with his sin. Because as great of a guy as Daniel was, he still sinned. We saw him be hesitant when he wanted to, or when he was asked to interpret King Nebuchadnezzar's dream because he was scared of what might happen to him. So even Daniel, a guy that was a great guy and a great example for us to strive to be like in some ways, guess what? It's sinful. And so here's the deal. At the end of the day, Daniel, when he dies, and he does, still is going to stand before a holy God. Nebuchadnezzar is still going to stand before a holy God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are still going to stand before a holy God, and they are not spotless. They've done a lot of things right, but they are not spotless. So this morning, we ought to rejoice in the power of God as it's displayed in the story of Daniel and all the things that God did through that. But what I want us to remember is this story is put in place to prepare the way for a better hero, a better Daniel that would also be faithful, that would also do a lot of awesome stuff, that would also show God's power through awesome miracles day in and day out through his ministry. But this time... The end of the story is a little different because the lion's mouth is not going to be shut this time. See, when we read the story of Daniel, we celebrate the fact that Daniel was saved. We celebrate the fact that he didn't have to endure being just mauled by lions. Let's be reminded that the story of Jesus when he came has a different ending. See, this time God's full wrath would be poured out. His wrath would be poured out so that you and I wouldn't have to face that wrath if we would repent and believe in Jesus. The story of Daniel is a great display of God's power, but we need to be reminded of the fact that it was not enough. We need to be reminded of that fact so that we can sit and understand that when Jesus came and he died on the cross, that was the biggest display of power that we have ever seen and ever will see. The fact that you and I, sinners, enemies of God, could be seen as righteous before a holy God is not possible without the sacrifice of Christ. So you want to talk about a display of power. You want to talk about a God who saves and who rescues. Daniel's an awesome story. I love to celebrate it. I love to see what God did. But this morning, let us be reminded of the fact that we still need Jesus. That we have no hope apart from Jesus. That you and I, even if we are able to do as well as Daniel did here, we have no hope apart from Jesus. This morning, if, if you have never repented and believed in Jesus, if you have never submitted to God's lordship in your life, I would beg you this morning, repent and believe in Jesus. And here's the deal. If you haven't, 
I hope that God does what he did to Nebuchadnezzar, if that's what it takes. I hope that he strips you of everything that you have that brings comfort here so that you can understand the only comfort that you will ever find is in Jesus. Is that our heart's cry this morning? Can you imagine? Because here's the deal. Nebuchadnezzar had it all. He had every worldly, every worldly thing that you could want. He had here. And you know what he needed most? To be stripped of all of it. This morning, if you're an unbeliever, I pray that God would work in your heart. I pray that you would submit to his lordship. I pray that you would believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. For those of you that are believers in the room, I want us to stop and think. I want us to go back and I want us to think about our work week. I want us to think about what that work week looks like. When we look at what Daniel did, when we look ultimately what Christ would come and do, if people were going to come after us because we were believers, would they have to try real hard? Would they even have to come up with something that has to do with our God? Or would they have plenty of other things to accuse us of that have nothing to do with the way we worship our God? Is the intent of our heart more, care more about the, the state of the, the hearts of the people that we work with and their, their state before a holy God? Or does it care more about whether we get that promotion or whether we get that paycheck in the, the week or whether we fill in the blank? As we looked at this story, I think it's a beautiful picture to watch Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego go unashamedly walk to King Nebuchadnezzar and say, look, my God is capable of saving, but he doesn't have to. I still will not bow down. Is that our heart's cry this morning? Am I so in awe of who God is and so willing to submit to him that I would say, look, I know my God is capable of saving me from any and all torment here that there is. But you know what? It doesn't matter if he will or not. I'm going to be obedient. Man, what an act to follow. I hope that as we've studied this story that you would be just spurred on to understand that that is the God we serve. That is how great of a God we serve that they had the confidence to go in and say that. Is that your view of God? This morning, I just want to finish by reading the, the, the last couple pages of the Jesus Storybook Bible. For those of you that have um, never heard of it, I would very much encourage you to get a copy, especially if you've got kids. It's a great, great, great resource to, to read to your kids, and I think it sums up this story really well. It says, the king went back to his palace, but he didn't sleep that night. Not a wink. He tossed and turned until finally, at the first glimmer of dawn, he leaped out of bed and read, ran straight to the den. Daniel, he cried, has your God rescued you? Yes, Daniel shouted. God sent an angel to close the lion's mouth and there resting his head on Daniel's lap was the biggest lion purring like a little kitten. The king brought Daniel out of the den. Look, he said, Daniel doesn't even have a scratch. The king made a new law. Daniel's God is the true God, the God who rescues. Pray to him instead. God would keep on rescuing his people. And the time was coming when God would send another brave hero like Daniel who would love God and do what God said, whatever it cost him, even if it meant he would die. And together, they would pull off the greatest rescue the world has ever known. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to you this morning. Lord, I'm sorry. 
I pray that you would, you would change my heart about my attitude when I walk to work. Lord, that you would show me the grace and mercy. Lord, that you would make it evident in my heart so that, Lord, as I, as I walk in and out of that place, Lord, that I would just be overwhelmed with who you are and what you've done for me. Lord, I pray, if there are any unbelievers in the room this morning, Lord, I pray that you would change their heart. Lord, I pray that you would save their soul. Lord, I pray that they would plainly see your beautiful rescue story through Jesus on the cross. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this beautiful day. In Jesus' name, amen.